Hello, everybody. Uh, so for those of you at St. Mary's College who don't know me, my name's Miss Alsbury, and I'm the head of Department for Health and Social Care, but I also have a second role within the college, which is that I'm the Partnership Director for our Medical Health and Social Care Academy. And during today's session, we're going to be trying to be able to focus in on um, kind of how ethnicity and how race can affect healthcare, um, how doctors are trained, and trying to be able to really evoke a couple of thoughts for yourselves to really reflect on how you might be able to make a difference in your future careers or in the life that you lead. Uh, so I'd like to be able to take this time to be able to introduce Bushra. Hi, I'm, uh, I'm Bushra Ali. I'm a GP in Hull and I'm a board member for Hull CCG, which is, uh, I think by the time you hear this, will have ceased to exist which is very sad um, and we'll be going into a, a slightly new landscape of the NHS. Absolutely. Uh, so thank you, Bushra, for coming and joining us. For those of you who might have listened to the Medical Academy podcast, the med blog, like we like to call it, um, Bushra has been one of our fabulous presenters on there as well. So if you want to hear more afterwards, please feel free to take a listen. Uh, so we thought we'd kind of start to think about the language that we use to be able to describe ethnicity. So I want you to take just a few moments and personally reflect on a couple of questions. The first question is, how would you describe yourself what is your own cultural identity and why do you think that is? Bushra, do you think you can answer those questions about yourself? I think I can, yeah. Would you like me to? Yeah. Um, so I would describe myself as, ooh, well, actually, now that is actually difficult. <laughs> Maybe I could do cultural identity more easily. <laughs> I'm going to skip to that one then. So <laughs> my cultural identity is that I am mixed race. I am half English and half Pakistani and I've grown up in a Muslim household and my personal household now is even more mixed because my partner is Indian Muslim but we are a Muslim household. So I suppose I probably identify more with the kind of Islamic um, and religious aspects which draw together our two um, households more than the the kind of nationality side of things but we refer to ourselves as brown as kind of a shorthand for what what we in our family are are all to certain extents yeah, absolutely. I think when you ask yourself to personally describe on describing yourself, and perhaps some of our students out there right now might be thinking about how to describe themselves for their CVs or how to describe themselves for their UCAS application, and all of a sudden it becomes hard. Because I think you look at how would you define yourself and what are the characteristics that become you and who you are as a person. Um, so I think if I was gonna do, do the same thing, I would say that I'm obviously a teacher at St. Mary's College. I'm proud to be a teacher here. I, I am also Canadian though, so for those of you out there that didn't know that, uh, but that actually holds my home. And there's a huge part of me that really cherishes that cultural identity. Um, so when I am traveling around Britain or when I'm with my partner who is from home and grew up only a couple of blocks from here, um, that that's part of our shared identity as a family. And for our little son um, who is 
British and Canadian then by trait, we kind of have that multicultural identity within our own household. So the reason why we're asking you guys to be able to reflect on this obviously goes hand in hand with our day to day. Uh, trying to be able to really look at this idea of racial justice, racial injustice, and possibly the language that we use. So obviously, Busher, you described yourselves as brown, but one of the things that we were talking about before was how do we describe the language that we use within healthcare systems? So can you talk us through some of those, please? Uh, so, yeah, often, in, in the literature, in the guidelines, we will come across the terms Black African or Afro-Caribbean. Um, we come across, in, certainly in the last two years, people using BAME, so Black, Asian, Minority, Ethnic, as kind of a catch-all term for everybody who's not white. Mm -hmm. um, we don't see as much of just Black or just Brown. Um, there seems to be some, I think, historical nervousness about using those terms, um, possibly because of some slightly unhelpful teachings that, that were given at, at some various points in, in um, healthcare settings where people feel that the, to use the word black in any setting um, about anything, you know, even describing your coffee as being black might offend somebody, um, which certainly hasn't been my experience <laughs> but it's, it's something that is is very ingrained for some people as being something that they were told once and they can never move past it so they then start trying to use slightly more specific terms like black african or um black afro-caribbean but then run the risk of getting that wrong yeah and actually using afro-caribbean for somebody who is black african and doesn't doesn't identify culturally or through their own kind of personal heritage at all with the Afro-Caribbean um, experience. And I think that's kind of one of the reasons why we're starting to have these conversations today across the school, um, but obviously in this specific session, because we want to be able to make sure that we're identifying people with their own cultural identity and demonstrating respect in the mix of that. Very so, much about, it's about identifying people the way that they identify themselves. Exactly. You know. Yeah, and I think like that links into some of the sessions that we've had recently to be able to help celebrate Pride um, and kind of links into our ethos in the college that we are accepting of absolutely everybody and that we're really here to be able to provide everybody with those excellent opportunities. You'd mentioned previously to me about kind of this idea of how you were taught in medical school to be able to describe some of these things um, and kind of really focusing in on analyzing and critiquing some of that. So there's some questions that we have. Um, um, that I thought you might want to talk us through just to be able to kind of think about it from a healthcare perspective. Yeah, so there's, there's a, a lot that we're, you know, medical school is all about learning to analyse and critique and, and really drill down into why do we do the things that we do? You know, is there a good evidence base for this? Is there a reason that backs up why we do, we give this medication for this problem or why we use this surgery to treat another? But there's an awful lot in medicine because, well, there's there's a lot of conditions. There's a lot of things that can go wrong with your body and we're dealing with people and there's an awful lot of difference between different people. So there are 
we are taught some shorthands. We're taught some ways of, of kind of making things a bit quicker and making links and relations in our brains to, to try to speed up that process a little bit. Mm-hmm. And that's kind of what, what led to that, that question about the majority. So in the main, we have to think about how most people respond to this particular illness or this particular drug or how most people recover from this particular surgery so that we can give some some idea about what the patient can expect or um, expect to experience. Mm-hmm. But that necessarily does exclude some people who are on the fringes. So minority groups, for whatever reason, are, are not specifically spoken about unless there is a specific thing that makes them stand out and we'll come to that with some of the um some of our examples yeah absolutely i think obviously that you're trained to be able to to make those diagnoses you're trained to be able to identify the side effects the probability of all of those things but obviously that might have an impact on kind of your service users the people that you're treating absolutely yeah there will be times where people feel that they've not been considered because then they don't identify with the majority group that we've kind of been we've been taught about or that that we're operating within you know because because that's different isn't it that's different for me as a GP in Hull to um, a GP who might be working in deepest South London we're going to be having very different experiences very different conversations but our training and our background might have been quite similar. Might have yeah. been based on the idea of what a British person is and how a British person will respond to X, Y, or Z. Mm-hmm. And I think this is where you started to be able to touch on this this tension, this critique that we're here to be able to kind of envelop uh, or develop a little bit further into this idea of a they and a them and trying to be able to actually look at an us instead to be able to develop this inclusive practice absolutely yeah so for the rest of today's session we're going to focus on three key areas of healthcare and how that this can be challenged to be able to support racial justice and inclusive practice of care so the first one that we're going to have a quick conversation about involves the policies around providing care for hypertension or things like high blood pressure we're going to look at how recognizing skin conditions has changed over the years and the resources that are there to be able to help support medical professions in that as well as looking at some very stark pregnancy statistics um, and then leading into a conversation that hopefully you guys can have further in your forum groups to be able to review and analyze and reflect on and possibly even hopefully develop these into your poster competitions to be able to help support how we are capable of kind of treating everyone as we would like to be able to treat each other. So the first one there, Bushra. This is something that you kind of brought to my attention when we first started having these conversations after your first podcast recording. Yeah, so hypertension or high blood pressure is a a really common problem um, in this country. It's a really common problem in general practice. It's something that we we deal with on a daily basis. Um, And it's one of the things which for uh, at least four decades 
we've just accepted that there is a bit in the guidelines about how to manage hypertension that refers to race. And it refers to it in a really offhand way where essentially we talk about what the guidelines are for white people and there are differences. So you, we give one set of drugs to people who are under the age of 55 and we give a different set of drugs to people who are over the age of 55. And we give the same drug that we give to people who are over 55 to people who are black or of black heritage. Because it was understood that perhaps all black people were non-renin responders. That's a slightly technical term, all to do with the kidneys and the renin angiotensin <laughs> system. You don't need to know the details about that, but it was assumed that all black people had problems with their renin system, therefore they wouldn't respond to the drug that we choose for people who develop hypertension under the age of 55 really young people who are going to have high blood pressure for the rest of their lives and whose kidneys need to be protected as well as we possibly can mm -hmm. from an early age but we treat it differently in black people because well they might not respond to it which has been a bit of a source of tension for lots of people the little quote that we've put here is actually a step step in the right direction um, only made in 2019 after at least a decade of lots of people saying but why but why shouldn't we give them a try shouldn't we allow black african afro-caribbean person the opportunity to try the drug we would choose for somebody of an equivalent age but of white heritage and if they didn't respond to it we could change it couldn't we because that's what that's what we would do for the white person. Yeah. We'd put them on the drug. If they didn't respond, if it didn't get better, we'd change it. So this is a step in the right direction because it's at least saying there's a drug that's similar, still not still not the same one, but there is a group of drugs that's similar but doesn't rely quite so much on the renin system, and we could use that because that might protect their kidneys in a better way. It's just a really uncomfortable thing. It's just really, really uncomfortable that we're doing something so totally different, not in order to be bespoke and to provide better treatment, but just through a nervousness. And when you when you read uh, you know various various books about racism that look at the genetic differences between different racial groups and actually there's very little genetic difference so how much of the idea that we have about people's renin systems is based on their genes and how much is based on their phenotype it's very difficult to know but are we actually through looking at phenotype potentially keeping people away from treatments that could be more appropriate to them, more helpful to them, and allow them to live a longer, happier, healthier life with high blood pressure, just based on what colour is your skin. And I think 
ultimately we're looking at trying to be able to challenge some of those things in history and how that's being developed and from what we know now is there a better way to treat patients? Is there a better way to be able to provide person-centered care and individualized care that steps away from race identifiers and that looks at the person as a whole to be able to provide them with the right drug and the right treatment and the right medication and that those can be adjusted like you said? Absolutely and that's the thing, the adjusting. So you know what conversation do I have with a person about the options for managing their high blood pressure? because it would be very easy for me to just go, that's what this says in the guideline. That's it, that's all I'm gonna follow. But actually, can we educate people so that that they, when they're having those conversations with patients, they can feel that they do understand it enough yeah. to offer the patient, we can follow the guideline or we could do this it's up to you and we can come to that decision together we can do what what feels right for you even if that means that you have to have a couple of extra blood tests and it's a bit more fiddling around and it takes us a bit longer to get the right drug but we've done the right thing for you as an individual yeah and providing them with that empowerment of choice to be able to help support them get the right level of care that they need absolutely thanks Busher. i really appreciate that so the next one was this one, which when we'd spoken about it, I wasn't aware of. Uh, and so the question that I'd like to pose to everybody that is listening to this is, what do you notice about all of these pictures? What's the similarity between all of these pictures? And why would it be important that we take a moment to analyze and critique these? And Bushra, you had said that when you were training in medical school, that when you were when you were trained through recognizing skin conditions, you were trained on only white skin. Yeah, yeah. So those images are from Dermnet NZ, which is kind of it's the site that we're all directed to. It's the site that all of our um, dermatology lecturers had always pulled their images from if they didn't have their own images some of them did um, have very helpful a, a very helpful personal library of, of pictures to show us um, but something that I, I don't think I even realized when I was at medical school was that they were all white skin absolutely all of them you know I trained in Leeds if we saw personal library pictures they were pretty much white skin if we were looking at these resources, it was white skin. It, we were taught how to recognise the way that the skin changes in various different skin conditions and in cancer on white skin because that's what is normal in this country. But we weren't taught how to specifically spot differences on black and brown skin. We were we were equipped with with some words so things like um, macular and papular which means raised or flat things like erythema talking about reddening and we can sometimes use those those words when we are describing any skin but actually there are skin conditions which appear different erythema doesn't necessarily look like redness on very very black skin 
Mm -hmm. It it appears different. I think this is where, when we started to have this conversation, it was why is this concerning? And it is because, uh, like you said, if you're being taught with a majority and rather than analyzing and critiquing that, given an opportunity to be able to see it in minority circumstances, that can be quite concerning in terms of providing patient care or providing the correct diagnoses. Yeah. And, and you know, one of the most awful experiences is when you suddenly are looking at somebody's skin because they have come in with an itchy skin condition and you're looking at it and going, I don't, I don't know. I don't know because I've never seen an image of this. I think it's X, but have I ever seen an image of what that looks like on this particular shade of skin? So one of the things that happened in 2020, just after the um, Black Lives Matter movement, um, was that this amazing resource suddenly appeared, um, Mind the Gap. And it was actually initiated by a medical student who was incredibly forward thinking, who had some lived experience and had experienced working in an area that was much more diverse than Hull, say, who just went, well, we need to gather as many pictures of black and brown skin with skin conditions so that people have a resource that they can look at. Mm. So doctors can go, well, I know what eczema looks like, but what does eczema look like in this racial group? And it was completely mind blowing because there were so many people who had never thought that they didn't have that resource and who looked at it and went, oh my goodness, there have been a handful of times in my life where I've thought, I just don't know. And I haven't known where to go because trusty Dermnet NZ doesn't <laughs> doesn't cater to a, um, a less than white population. So it, this generated a lot of discussion and there were lots of people who were really, really grateful that it had appeared. And equally, there were lots of people who were just really sad that nobody else had ever thought of it. I think that's one of the, the reasons why we're having these challenging conversations today because we do need to look ahead to the future and we do need to look at what exists and then we need to be able to look at how can we make that better and obviously creating such a resource like you said has had a massive impact on medical practice and has absolutely changed the way that doctors are able to then provide more person-centered care and better health care to be able to recognize some of those conditions which could be quite serious quite early on. Absolutely. Yeah, you know, particularly things like spotting a melanoma, which in fairness can be, so some of the skin cancers can be less um, less common mm. in black skin because of, of the um, increased melanoma skin. But it does happen. And if it's that much more difficult for you to spot on your own skin and then for your doctor to actually recognise as being ah, that's not, that's not the way that your skin is meant to look. And actually that could be a sign off um, and make a referral and then give you the opportunity to have it removed. Then you're going to have a poorer outcome because yeah. it's going to be larger. You're going to lose more skin in having um, the area taken away. And the longer that you have something like a melanoma, the more chance there is that it's going to spread. And it's, it's the spread that kills. 
Yeah. I think we've got some pictures of um, some oh, we do. nails, haven't we? This was the introduction that I took from the actual website to be able to review this. There is more and more literature on the need for medical students to address the equality and diversity agenda in order to ensure that future doctors can effectively treat the diverse population in the UK. The COVID-19 pandemic has highlighted how marginalised and particularly the BME communities have poor health outcomes. If medicine does not decolonize its curriculum and teach students to recognize signs and symptoms on darker skin tones, there will be delays in diagnosis or misdiagnosis. As a result, as offering images of conditions on black and brown skins frequently omitted in textbooks, we've also looked at language descriptors that often assume the patient is white. And I think that goes right back to obviously the initial conversation that we've had with reference to hypertension and the documentation on policies to provide medication. It looks at that bigger, broader agenda that actually it's the reason why we're having a day like today at the college to be able to look at racial justice and how can we best support that in the future going ahead, not only with the language that we use, but also the way that we can provide in a health and social care system, better patient-centered care. So as an example, uh, this was one of the pictures that was there in order to be able to help support what different conditions can look like. Yeah, and this this is a, a really important one because actually spotting um, melanomas that are appearing under the nails, it's a different way of it presenting anyway compared to how it presents on the skin. Um, but it looks different on black nails. Mm. Black nails look different anyway. Um, so actually knowing that when you've got a dark line that could be something that you need to be quite concerned about and you need to be referring um, rather than going well, is that just what your nails look like i don't know oh, i don't i don't know um it's so important because otherwise what are we doing we're delaying diagnosis we're potentially creating worse outcomes thank you so the next one was something that, again, in our conversations initially, I was quite surprised about. And I'd found this article from The Guardian when I was pulling this together to be able to kind of highlight this and just talking about pregnancy and brown and black heritage and how that can affect things. So when we're looking at the, the title here in the media, and obviously part of your sessions today have been set out to be able to help you try and unpack and analyze how the media might be able to create a certain picture or frame a certain picture picture um, with the headlines there and the headline given black women in the UK are four times more likely to die in pregnancy or in childbirth which is quite startling yeah and it's not much better for, for other groups either is it Mm -hmm, exactly. So in the next slides, we're going to show you some clearer statistics to be able to kind of critique this, analyze this and lead us into a further conversation about where we can go from here. So this was the key quote that you'd provided previously, that there's a stark disparity in maternal mortality rates between women of black and Asian aggregated ethnic groups and white women, more than four times higher for black women, two times higher for mixed ethnicity women, and almost twice as high for Asian women. Apart from a slight drop in the maternal mortality rate for black women, this bleak picture has not changed in over a decade. And that was produced in 2021. Yeah, and I, th I think it's based on, on data about maternal deaths from 2017 to 2019. So this is current. This is, this mm. is what's ha actually happening in very recent history. And we're talking about more than four times higher for black women is a slight improvement. Mm. 
it has been even worse than that. That's the improved status. And really, what is the difference? Why is that happening for women who are non-white? Why are the rates higher for non-white groups across the board, but with worse disparity amongst that as well? Yeah. When these, these are women who are living in the same country. This is all happening in the UK. This isn't black women or mixed ethnicity women or Asian women who are living in villages or living with, you know, without access to clean water or anything like that. This is women living in the UK, all living in the same kind of employment status, living with the same um, benefits available to them, same sanitation. What's, what's the difference then? And at the moment, all we've been able to put our fingers on is colour of skin, cultural identity. So I think we need to be able to look at this in an analytical way and we need to go, how can we make a difference and what can we do to be able to provide racial justice in healthcare systems and trying to be able to improve um, the quality of the healthcare system in terms of person-centered care. And I think this is where we lead into these conversations that are so important today about why are we talking about these things? Why is it necessary that we have these conversations now? Regardless about whether you think you may or may not be going into a health and social care career in the future, why is it still pertinent for you as the individual living in such a culturally diverse country as the UK? And so I think this leads back to our initial conversations of the they and the them. Um, and looking at how can we challenge those conversations and the changes that we might need to be able to make to be able to kind of help support all service users ensuring access to equal healthcare outcomes. And sometimes it's, it's making real changes that feel odd because they're not the change that's the best for the majority. You know, so sometimes we are talking about actually what, what kind of reasonable adjustments are we going to need to make? What do we need to do that is very special for this group of, of service users? Mm -hmm. Because some service users need something very different. And so I think this is where we started to have this conversation of like actually challenging this victim blaming conversation that it's it's their ethnic differences, it's their cultural identity um, that means that they can't access those services. And instead of changing and challenging that narrative, um, trying to be able to focus in on, is there something that we could do differently to be able to ensure everybody has full access and to recognize those ethnic differences um, and therefore changing that conversation from us versus them. Yeah, I've certainly been in meetings which have have come from a really good place at looking at these, um, particularly the maternity st statistics, and going, "Wow, this is terrible." You know, how can how can we fix this? What's what's the problem? What's the issue? And the conversation has been very much around what's different about them. What's different about that 
community? What's different about them that stops them coming to us to ask for help? Mm-hmm. Or what's different about them that makes them more at risk? And I just think that that's really, it's really dangerous. Um, because actually, there were lots of examples of, of women from minority ethnic backgrounds who have gone to healthcare services, have contacted maternity services, have been going through the entire process and still had a poorer outcome than somebody else who is white. So it's not a, it's not all about them. It's not all about what's wrong with them or what's wrong with the way that they live their lives within UK society. It's not all about how they access or choose to access or choose to not access. There is something about the services that we're offering, which either partially or totally exclude people or don't listen to and see and recognise those people in the same way or try to shoehorn them into some kind of treatment pathway or care plan that doesn't fit with the way that they see themselves or the way that their culture and community might work. We don't know. We don't know what it is that's going wrong yet. And we need to. We need to get to the crux of actually what is it that is that is different and how can we change what we offer so that it is something that can be accepted, will be accepted, is of value and improves outcomes. But that that conversation doesn't start with blaming the victims and saying, what are they doing wrong? Why are they dying? Hmm. And I think that's the whole point, isn't it? That we should be in a position where we can have challenging conversations, where we can challenge and look at these statistics and say, there, there's something that's not right. Oh, apologize, just the school bell here. <laughs> We're okay. Um, and that we need to be able to make a difference in order to be able to improve those outcomes across the board um, and change that narrative, change that language, change even perhaps just the way that we actually look at the statistics and how we then go about that research. And I think you're right, we, we mentioned that sometimes it might feel a little bit uncomfortable having those conversations or feel a little bit uncomfortable doing things differently, but that actually by doing things differently, by talking about it, by being open and by being probably a little bit vulnerable in those ana- analyses, that we're capable of seeing something new and helping to be able to provide something even better than what we currently have. Yeah, I think it's really important that I don't really think that there's anybody in healthcare who doesn't want to do the best for their patients. It's just that sometimes we've not we've not been well equipped to do the best for all of our patients. Mm. We've been well equipped to do the best for the majority. And there are groups that we maybe haven't thought about, or that everyone who's taught us and everyone who's written our guidelines has not thought about. So being Kind of really careful to have that conversation in a in a gentle way yeah. that is positive and is just looking for how can we improve you know nobody is saying that anyone is deliberately killing black women when they're trying to have their babies no but it is happening and if we don't look at that it will carry on happening 
I think it's looking at it, like I said, from that vulnerable perspective, not to be able to place blame on anybody, because I think you're very right. Anybody that's going into a health and social care career is there because they want to be able to make a difference and they want to be able to help and really trying to be able to say it's okay to stay to take a step back and kind of look at the training and look at what's needed and look at it in a new way to be able to ensure that we're always trying to be able to improve those outcomes. So when we were spoke, speaking previously, we were talking about this, the Workforce Race Equality Standard. Can you tell us a little bit more about that? So this is a slightly different way of looking at race in healthcare. Um, and it's, it's more about the workforce. So we know that we have issues around kind of the, the care that we provide to patients and, and how racial injustice plays a part in that. But we're also becoming increasingly aware of episodes and instances of racism within the NHS workforce as well. Um, so, it, and this is health and social care. There have been various surveys that happened over the last couple of years, which have revealed that actually lots and lots of people working in healthcare, including doctors, have experienced racism. And they've experienced racism from their patients, they've experienced racism from their colleagues, they have experienced racism from external bodies like the General Medical Council um, and colleges. So they, they have found that their careers have been either stopped or slowed or manipulated by the system purely because of colour of their skin or the ways they most identify with and it's it's just incredibly disappointing because I, I you know I think most people look at doctors and think well that's a, a good stable profession relatively well paid it's 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 very equal in some ways you know there isn't a there isn't a huge difference between um, a male doctor and a female doctor but there are huge differences between a white doctor progressing through training without any real blips and anybody who's non-white, particularly if they've um, trained internationally, they are much, much more likely to be um, to receive patient complaints. They're much more likely to have complaints made about them upheld by their colleagues and they're much more likely to see complaints either by patients or by colleagues about um, professional conduct escalated up to bodies like the GMC. And then they're much more likely to be struck off. Apologies for the bell again. I think those are, I mean, those are quite startling um, facts to be able to suggest that in such a highly professional environment that there can still be some quite significant challenges that are experienced. Um, for those students that I, I teach, I, I might have shared this story because we do a unit called Equality, Diversity and Rights or Equality, Diversity and Inclusive Practice uh, in our sixth form health and social care curriculum. Uh, and they really try to be able to, to teach students the ability to critique and analyze and in order to be able to know what person-centered practice would look like going in there. And 
and how to be able to best support those individual rights. Um, Canada is incredibly multicultural uh, and it's always been something that's really, really highly celebrated. So growing up, there were um, lots of different ways in which all of my schools kind of celebrated cultural diversity. Um, and it wasn't until I actually came to Hull to be able to study at Hull University. And I was uh, out with two of my housemates. One was from Taiwan and one was from China. Um, and we were in Beverly. And somebody had purposefully bumped into them and then said a racial slur. And I was quite startled by that. Now this was years and years and years ago, but I do think racism exists and it exists today. Even because of my own accent, I've been challenged about that in town previously. And I found that really, really startling and, and quite challenging to be able to cope with. So I think one of the reasons why we're, we're having these open discussions today is to be able to challenge that, that those instances shouldn't be happening um, and that we need to be able to put a stop to that. Yeah, and it, it is, it, it's those smaller things as well, isn't it? So one of the things that came out of, we did a, a survey of primary care, um, so GPs and all the people who work in GP practices um, as with the local medical committee. And the, some of the things that came out of that were, were those massive shocking things about, you know, complaints upheld, hauled up in front of the GMC. The, the, this was an awful experience. But then lots of those things were also those little microaggressions, those little comments about, oh, you know, you, you actually speak quite good English for a darkie, said to somebody who was born and raised in this country and who's you know, doesn't doesn't really know how to take that or feels that they're not allowed to respond because if you respond, is that going to damage the doctor-patient relationship? So there are these, these little things that people say that actually really are upsetting because they remind you. They remind you that however hard you've worked, however much effort you've put in, other people will still sometimes look at you and just see the colour of your skin. That's all they're seeing. And they've been thinking about the colour of your skin all of the time that you've been having a really good interaction with them, really thinking about their healthcare needs, really thinking about what's the diagnosis here, how am I going to treat it, how can we come to a decision together? And they say something at the end that just makes you go, right, but to you I'm just the black doctor, the brown doctor, the one that's not the nice English doctor. Mm. And knowing that things like the nice English doctor, that's still things that people ask for. When they ring up, they will still ask my care navigators, oh, can I see that nice English doctor I saw last time? I don't understand the other one. And this is why we're having these conversations. This is why we're, we're having this day to be able to highlight the language that we use and to highlight that we need to be able to change the way that we're doing things in order to make sure that everybody is treated equally. Yeah, because anything else just grinds, grinds people down. It wears people down and eventually they burn out. They burn out that bit quicker because it's a real slog. So 
We have one more slide, which I think kind of leads into and out of the conversation that we've just had in terms of what do we learn from this and where do we go from here? And I think like you've, you've highlighted previously, Bushra, that the answer should never be, how can we change these people so that our healthcare system works for them? And that we need to change the narrative and we need to change the conversation so that it should be, how can we change the healthcare system so that it works for everyone? absolutely everyone to be able to make sure that we provide this individualized patient care that we can care for the people and we can be person-centered in those instances because we all know that's the way to be able to have the best outcomes for everybody that's sitting in front of you and Bushra I, I can honestly say and I said this to you obviously I think previously just in an email that somebody had recognized you from our previous podcast and said what a brilliant GP and that you were the one that listened and you were the one that cared and you were the one that made a difference and I think the work that you're doing is there to be able to really make a difference for all of the patients that you see and hopefully today for our students that we have in front of us. Thank you that's really kind because it, it there's still I mean there's so much so much work to do um, even it's just around little things really I, I had a a really really uncomfortable experience the other day where just being able to listen wasn't enough mm. and just being able to listen wasn't enough because I was having to use an interpreter and actually the difference and the barrier that that creates stopping me using my very carefully selected language and my mirroring techniques that I would use with somebody who is struggling with mental health and having to go through this other person and go this is really hard this is really hard for me okay because I can only experience what this is like for me and it was really hard for me as the doctor how incredibly awful must it be for this poor patient at the other end of the line who is also not able to get what they need to say across to me and it's therefore not able to receive the kind of benefit that every other patient I saw that day who was speaking English and who could understand my English was getting just from that, just from the quality of that conversation. Because conversations are really what makes humanity keep going. <laughs> Talking and listening and that back and forth is really what it's all about. So I'm very conscious that there is lots and lots of work to do across the board on this, um, but trying to learn each day. And that's all we can ever do. I think we can only take today as one step along all of our learning journeys to open up these conversations, to think about our own actions and the way that we're responding to different situations and how can we make a difference to every single person that we meet? How can we go and really improve their lives, even if it's your friend or your family member, or if you're planning on going into health and social care, how can you make a difference to the patients in front of you? And how can you make a difference to challenge some of those those stereotypes and to challenge against the language that's currently being used to be able to change the narrative. 
Well, Bushra, I'd like to say thank you on behalf of St. Mary's College today for joining us to be able to kind of discuss some of these really challenging topics. For our form tutors out there, we'd encourage you to be able to go back and try and look at some of these questions that are posed throughout this presentation and discuss amongst yourselves maybe just three things that you think that could make a difference to be able to make sure that everybody in your form group or everybody that you come in contact with throughout your days um, really knows that they themselves as that individual is respected. Thank you so much everybody for listening. Thanks for having me.